So today I want to kind of dig into this text a little bit, and I want to talk about three aspects of this. I want to first, I want to just get, we're going to read this, but after that, I want to look at kind of the importance and the power of speech in general in Scripture. And I want to really outline kind of what James is talking about here. He's giving us a lot of uh, warnings and dangers that are involved with our tongue. And I want to kind of close with some action points. How, do, how does the tongue become tamed? So if you guys want to read along with me, there'll be slides. Also, you can turn to your Bible or your device. We're going to be in James 3, 1 through 12. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach are judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways, and anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by, a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the body parts, and it corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals and birds and reptiles and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise the Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. There's a lot to unpack there, but the idea, the general idea of this passage has to do with our tongue and our tongue as related to how we speak, right? And if you uh, go in Google and you begin to search, depending on your search parameters, you can find anywhere from 54 to 65 verses on the importance of speech and controlling your tongue. To put that in perspective, when I just generally searched uh, Bible verses having to do with love others, loving others, there was only 98. That's a pretty significant number then when you're looking at nearly two-thirds of the numbers about love is about taming your tongue. And I want to just go through a couple with you just so you guys can be aware of some of the things Scripture says because a lot of these passages are passages we read through, right? We're reading in, in Peter, or we're reading in Colossians, or we're le- reading in, in Ephesians here, and we, we don't really take a lot of note of it because it's just a small sampling. But let's look at it in the context of the greater Scripture. We're going to look at some New and Old Testament verses here. 1 Peter 3.10, For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. Colossians 4.6, Let your conversations always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Ephesians 4.29, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only that which is useful for building up others according to their purpose, so that it may benefit those who hear. 
So that's in the New Testament, just a small sampling. We're going to jump to the Old Testament. Let's look at Proverbs 10, 19. Sin is not ended by the multiplying of words, but the prudent hold their tongues. Now, that's, that's a wise statement there. Uh, Proverbs 15, 2. The tongue of the wise adorns knowledge, but the mouth of the fool gushes folly. Proverbs 15.4, the soothing tongue is a tree of life, but the perverse tongue crushes the spirit. Psalm 141, oh wait, sorry, Proverbs 21.23, those who guard their mouths and their tongues keep themselves from calamity. And then the psalmist says this in 141.3, set a guard over my mouth, Lord, keep watch over the door of my lips. And that's the most poignant one I want to end with because I love that imagery of God set a guard over my mouth. Keep watch over my lips. God needs to be involved in this process, right? And that's what we're going to kind of look at today toward the end is is the idea of taming our tongue has really little to do with us and a lot to do with God. Um, But the idea that this is talked about so much in Scripture shouldn't be a surprise. I mean... We grew up hearing phrases like what? Watch your mouth. And I like that imagery. We talked a little bit about like, if there's a song I really like, I'm like, watch this part. As if you could see the lyrics, right? But watch your mouth. Or think before you speak. Or bite your tongue. Or don't let your mouth write a check you can't cash. Yeah, I know. You can't take your words back once they're spoken. Right? Right? Words are powerful and as such need to be treated in a way that recognizes their potential power. We don't speak lightly. That's why in in James it said, what? Be slow to speak, right? Because there's something about being slow to speak that lets us get what we're going to say in line with who God is. But for most of us, we're slow to listen and quick to speak, right? And so as James goes through these 12 verses looking at this, and I want to start looking at how powerful and important the tongue and speech are in Scripture, starting at the very beginning. In Genesis 1, 1 through 3, God at creation. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and now the earth was a formless and empty Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God said, let there be light. God said, he spoke. Did God need to speak? Does God need to do anything? God chose to speak into existence everything that we see. That's the beginning of the understanding of the power and the importance of speech. When God spoke, it was. And created in the image of God, when we speak certain things, we can speak life and death into this world. At Pentecost, Peter stands up, right? They receive the Holy Spirit, and their first miracle is to speak in tongues so that at least 15 different people groups that are represented according to verses... 9 through 11 in Acts 2, each one could, it says, hear them describing or declaring the wonders of God in their own tongue. So at the beginning, and at the beginning of the church, right, what was important? The first miracle the Holy Spirit does through the apostles is allow them to speak 
in a way that allows everyone to hear the wonders of God. That's a pretty big deal if you really think about the purpose and the importance of the church. God cannot be glorified by the church if the church isn't representing God in the way that they speak. And that's an important thing to think about. Jesus is the word of God. I mean, that's his name, right? Before Jesus' incarnation, we know according to John 1, 1 through 2, that Jesus is the word. Words are powerful. The reference to God the Son is the word of God. But not just in a positive way do words have power and importance, right? Let's look at Satan in the garden. Genesis 3, 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Satan says, Did God really say? You see, the first fall came as a result of Satan speaking temptation into the life of Adam and Eve. And really, there's only two sides to this, right? Either you're going to speak as a representative of God or you're going to speak on behalf of Satan. There's no in-between here. Either life or death is going to come from your lips. Either life or death. But let's look at that. Let's bring it to history. There's this guy named Hitler, right? And in the power of his speaking ability, he was able to rally a broken Germany to become a nearly unstoppable tyrannical empire killing thousands of people. On the power of his speaking. On the power. In our history, Martin Luther King Jr., on the power of his speaking ability, he was able to rally a segregated country to fight for a common cause of equality and freedom. He is one of the primary reasons the Civil Rights Amendment was finally passed. The power and importance of speech. See, words have a profound power, and they're the very way God created. And each time we speak, we have the responsibility of weighing what we are saying, because it will either honor God and build others up, or dishonor God and destroy. We don't speak lightly. That's why I think the Bible talks so much about being slow to speak. Because the less you say, the less destruction you're probably going to cause. Because for most of us, the majority of what we say isn't going to be directly honoring God, if we're honest. And I'm going to talk about why later. But I want us to look first at the warnings and dangers that James lays out in this passage. And he starts with teachers. He says what? Teachers are judged more strictly. He says, not many of you, my fellow believers, should become teachers. See, this should cause some apprehension to anyone with that mantle Because we know that being a teacher comes with responsibility and accountability, both to sound doctrine, but also to sound conduct. If you read in uh, 2 Timothy 1.13, it says this, Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Jesus Christ. We also see in Titus 2, 7-8, Show yourselves in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. It's important if you're going to teach, if you're going to lead what you say. But 
I would propose this, that as a minister of the gospel of reconciliation, which 2 Corinthians 5 calls every person who's in Christ, you're teaching. Whether you want to have that mantle or not, somebody's watching you today. Somebody's listening to what you're saying today. And even if you don't know it, even when you're alone, God is listening and God is watching. And so while this may be directly for official title teachers, everyone is teaching someone. And there is an accountability to God for what we're teaching. There's another warning. He says, anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect. So you know what the standard of perfect is? It's not just in conduct, but in your speech. And that's kind of scary because down in verse 8 it says, no man or no human being can tame their tongue. So you want to go back to why we're not perfect? Because we don't have the capacity on our own to tame our tongue. And our tongue is a requirement of being perfect. What we say and how we say it matters. Another warning says it's the small things in life like a bit a rudder, and a tongue that direct the life, and I would say of both the speaker and the listener, if we're talking about the tongue, right? It's the small things. It's not the big things, you know? It's brick by brick that a house is built. You put up that whole wall, it's going to be flimsy, right? It's that small thing. It only takes a little rudder on the back of a great big ship to steer it. That's important. The tongue is like that. That's what he's saying. It's a warning that your little tongue goes a long way. And the last warning is, when we say we praise God but curse people created in his image, James compares this contradiction to a spring not being able to produce both salt and fresh water. Who determined what kind of water that spring was going to produce in the first place? God. And so what I take from this when I read this is, if I'm going to praise God but curse his creation, then my praise is probably insincere. I mean, I might think I'm in fresh water, but I'm probably really in salt water. It's a way for me to examine and self-examine. Is my praise to God authentic? Because if I am cursing, as soon as I walk out these doors, I'm singing praises to God. But as soon as I get in traffic and that person cuts me off and I'm cursing them, do I get the point? See, what I think we like to do is bite our tongue. You know, the idea is bite your tongue. Don't say that. Be the bigger person. Take the higher road. We're going to look at what God's really calling us to here in a minute. But I would say that it's really hard to produce genuine praise out of a mouth that curses what God has made. Dangers. There's dangers. It says it only takes a spark to start a great forest fire. In 2018, there were four major fires in California. In total, between the four, nearly 500,000 acres were burned despite man's best effort to stop it. 500,000 acres. That fire started with a spark. And it destroys. How many words are like that? You say one thing, and it starts a fire that destroys a whole nation. Words are a fire. It's important that we recognize this when we talk, that we're not just saying something, we're saying something that can either cause destruction or give life. It says the tongue is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. You don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you have been poisoned by somebody's tongue? How many of you have been the poisoner? 
Right, and I, I thought about this, you know, with these two um, dangers. First of all, uh, I was talking to Christy Hornberger on Thursday, and she told me about this teacher she had in one of her classes when she was in school, and he was a rabbi, and uh, it was in some kind of religion or literature class. Anyway, he took them after hours to Fantastic Caverns, the class, and he, they went down there, and he turned the light off for 15 minutes. And in darkness, they were to ponder and think about these writings they were reading. And after 15 minutes, he lights a single candle. And the amount of light that came from that single candle was so strong that the world around them went from complete darkness to them being able to see everything when their eyes adjusted. And so just like it takes a little spark to burn 500,000 acres, it only takes a little light, a little spark to illuminate everything in life. That's how big the tongue can be. And, you know, we talked about in first service, if you had something that was deadly poisonous in your house, you'd keep a close eye on it, wouldn't you? If you had a black mamba in your house, right, you would be looking at it. You wouldn't just let it roam around freely and not worry about where you're stepping or where you're sitting. You would have the lights on when you're walking around. You'd be paying attention. It says the tongue is full of deadly poison. Are you keeping an eye out on it? Or are you just letting it wander free? See, that's the danger. Because we don't see it the way God says it is sometimes. And as we've discussed, James is in a book to ponder or to think on overly, but it's a call to action. And the action clearly here is that we need to get a hold of our tongue, right? We need to be taming our tongue. But who can do that and how can that happen if, according to verse 8, no human being can tame the tongue, right? See, that's the, the dilemma we're in. God, I know you want me to tame the tongue. But then at the sa- in the same verse, verses, you're saying you can't do it. So who's going to do it? And I think this is the paradox of James. James is, the, is the, bu- the book that says faith without works is dead. Even goes so far as to say that um, you're not only justified by faith, but also by the work you do. Referencing Abraham, which is, seems to be in complete contradiction to what Paul is saying in Romans when Paul says, well, you're not justified by the law, you're justified by faith. And we don't have time to get into that, but it's not a contradiction because the Bible doesn't contradict itself. But I will say this, Paul summarizes it best when he says, when talking about being the least of the apostles, yet I labored more than all the rest of them, but not me, but the grace of God in me. You see, because the work we do and the work we produce on our own merit is like filthy rags to God. The best I have to offer God is an oil-stained cloth, and that's not going to get anything clean. You guys ever tried to wipe off your windshield with that oil cloth that you used to check your dipstick? It doesn't work. So it's not the work we do, but rather the work God is doing through us. Does that make sense? The work that God is doing through us is the work by faith that justifies us. And I think a lot of times when we come to this passage, we think, I got to watch what I say. I got to bite my tongue. And I would challenge us as we read to think about God doesn't want you to have to bite your tongue. God doesn't even want that thought to be in your mind. So let's look at where the problem really lies. Is it really our tongue? Well, according to Matthew 15, 18, it says this, but the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart. 
and these defile them. Or in Luke 6.45, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. See, your tongue isn't a problem. Your heart is. It's not about biting your tongue. It's about having a different heart. It's having a heart that is honoring God, that's near God. It's not about watching what you say. Because when your heart is right, your tongue is right, according to Scripture. Does that make sense? It's kind of like if I'm bleeding, yes, I may need to stem the blood by putting sutures in. But if there's something inside that I'm not dealing with, I'm going to always be bleeding. You know, sometimes we like to put Band-Aids on our faith instead of allowing God to come in as the surgeon and do something to actually change us. So I would ask today, what's filling your heart? See, that's the most important question to ask when dealing with the call to tame your tongue. Because according to both these passages, the origin of your speech is your heart. And you can't effectively tame the tongue if God isn't changing your heart. You can't effectively tame your tongue if God's not changing your heart. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says this, Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. See, one of the primary reasons we're struggling with our tongues today is the company we keep, right? And I know this verse was directed toward people as in the company of people you're hanging out with. But in our increasingly isolated culture, the company we often keep is more likely to be Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, Netflix, Spotify, Audible, and a good old-fashioned ebook, right? That's the company we're really keeping these days, if you're honest. What do you spend more time listening to or watching or engaging in? That's the company. So I would say that the company we keep is anyone or anything we spend time with. Because anyone or anything we spend time with has influence. And I don't want to hear that, well, I just like the beat. You know, I don't care if you just like the beat. You're taking in what's being said. Whether you want to or not, whether you even know the words, those words are being soaked up into that little brain of yours and and changing your worldview. Which is why there are so many people in the church who look more like the world than like Jesus. Because their worldview is more shaped by the company they keep because that company is not Jesus. Because you'll know a tree by its fruit. And you look at the fruit of the church and unfortunately it's not much different in a lot of ways than the rest of the world. And I think this goes back to the one of the first things we can do differently is to be aware that bad company corrupts good character. And so the company we keep will either draw us nearer to God and his holiness or tear us away from God. It's that serious. See, Job says it this way in Job 31, 1 through 4. He says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. For what is our lot from God above, our heritage from the Almighty on high? Is it not ruin for the wicked and disaster for those who do wrong? Does he not see my ways and count my every step? Like Job gets it, right? Job says, okay, God's always watching. And people are going to reap what they sow. And so I'm going to make a covenant with my eyes so that I don't put myself at risk of God's wrath. Nobody's forcing Job to do this. And this is a strong word, covenant. 
In the Hebrew, bereth means primarily a cutting with reference to the custom of cutting or dividing animals in two and passing between them to ratify a covenant. You guys understand how a covenant worked in the Old Testament. If you don't, I'll give you a quick overview. You would take these animals and prepare them by cutting them and their entrails are going to be in this path. And there's two people in the covenant. The person of higher position will walk through second. The person of lower position will walk through first. And it's symbolic of saying, if I break my side of this agreement, you have the right to do this to me. Which is why it's crazy that when Abraham is called by God to prepare, that Jesus is the only one that walks through the Spirit of God. Saying, if you break my covenant, I'm going to destroy me. (laughs) If I break my covenant, I'm going to destroy me. A little foreshadowing for the cross. But a covenant's a serious thing. And I got to tell you guys, if you've been baptized into Christ today, you've entered into a covenant relationship with God. You've made a pledge of good conscience towards God. You've said, God, I'm going to give my life to you, forsaking my will for yours. And if I don't live up to that, you can destroy me. Now, by God's grace, when we stumble, Jesus is there. But that's a big deal. So Abraham, I mean, not Abraham, Job knew this. And he said, I'm going to make a covenant with my eyes. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 5, 29. If your right eye causes you to stumble, then gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. I mean, it's a serious thing, guys. It's not like, you know, if if your eyes or your ears or your time are causing you to sin, then make a covenant. That's what we're going to talk about. And it is time to act today. Because it's not just about hearing the word. Don't be just hearers of the word. Be doers, right? It's like somebody who goes and looks in the mirror and then walks away and forgets what their face looks like. What's the point of looking in the mirror? You know, the real mirror is this, right? Because if we're, if we're to be recreated in the image of God, then the only place we can go to see what that looks like clearly is in the word. So today I want to challenge us as a congregation To do these three things. The first one is to analyze the company you are keeping. Friends, music, movies, radio, books. And I want you to ask the question, in what ways do they influence your heart toward holiness or away? Because without self-examination, it is impossible to begin to do things differently. If we're not willing to look at ourselves, if we're not able to have an honest Look into our hearts and our minds. We will never be able to take the next step. So the first step is to analyze that company. Step two, make a covenant with your eyes or your ears or your time not to listen or invest time or look at things that draw your heart away from God. So once you've identified those things, you're going to make a covenant. We've already made that covenant once, but we're going to reaffirm that. Say, I'm not willing to do this because this is going to cause me to go further and further away from God, who I've made a commitment to. That's not legalism. It's called Christianity. You know, Jesus paid his life. He suffered the wrath of God on our behalf. If that's true, then the least we can do is cut these things out of our life. Even if it's things we enjoy, and a lot of times sin is something we do enjoy. I'm not saying all these things are negative things. This could be your favorite book series. What's the company you're keeping? The third and most important part of this is to commit to praying daily. Psalm 51, 
10 through 12. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. You see, if the heart is the origin of speech, then the only option we got is for God to clean that heart. That's the only way that we're going to ever tame the tongue. Because God has to be at work. And I, and I fear that we lean toward, well, what can I do? I'm going to bite my tongue. No, I don't want you to bite your tongue. I'll leave you with this last thought. Military training is done in such a way so that they tear you down and rebuild you so that your reaction to a situation is what they would want your response to a situation to be. Does that make sense? What's the difference between a reaction and a response? A reaction is something that happens automatically, right? A response is something that we think about first. God is training us up so that we react in the way that Jesus would respond, so that it's what becomes natural to us. As we are sanctified by the Holy Spirit, we become like Christ. So it's not a matter of I stub my toe, oh, I'm going to bite my tongue so I don't say a cuss word. It's The cuss word never came into my head because my heart is full of Jesus. Or in anger, instead of me trying to calm myself down, my heart is so full of Jesus that forgiveness flows forth naturally. That's the Christian walk. It's not on our own power. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. And we're afraid of that. Because we would actually change. And if we're honest, we like some of what we do. So I want to challenge us to pray this because God will deliver on his promises. And if we pray this to God, God will come through and our lives will be different. And the purpose of our existence is to glorify God. And we cannot do that if our tongue is cursing what he's created. So this morning and every day this week, I want to keep this prayer in front of us. And hey, we can be hearers of the word or doers. That's not something we can do for you. But what we can do for you today is pray. What we can do for you is walk beside you through this. What we would love to do is to hear how God is working through your lives and to hear the testimony of a heart that has been renewed by God and is being renewed by God. And if you've never put Christ on in baptism, there's no better day than today. But if you have, and maybe you need to make a recommitment, a rededication, we would love to be there for you. In any way we can, we are the body. We are all equal on this. No human can tame their tongue. But God can create a pure heart in us. Will you bow with me as I pray? Dear Lord, we uh, thank you for your spirit. We thank you that you are willing to do the work, help us to get out of your way, God. Help us to be the men and women you've called us to be. Lord, as we uh, prepare to sing, create in me a clean heart, may we do that sincerely as if we're crying out in prayer to you. In Jesus' name, amen.